Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance. Scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, today my guest is David Davies. And the question in your mind could be, could my business have a channel as a route to market? Could I get one, two, ten, maybe hundreds of other salespeople selling my product or service? David has some of the answers for you there. How could I make my existing salespeople more effective? Nobody likes to sell. Nobody likes to be sold to. And certainly there is a, I don't know, there's a myth about salespeople, slimy, aggressive, pushy. I don't think great salespeople are any of those things. So we talked to David about his early career, being a sales director, being a sales manager, and then his epiphany at an event uh, when he was shown the light by the good people of Sandler. And we talk about some of the highlights of that approach that he's now a coach for that he wishes he could have taken back in time and made himself a better leader. A fantastic, informative conversation with David, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it as much as I did. So I'm Dave, Dave Davies, and I'm a Sandler trainer based here in Reading, Berkshire. Been in sales for coming up to 35 years. Uh, and for the majority of that time, I've been in tech. And for the majority of the time I've been in tech, I've been building sales teams from scratch for relatively small organizations that we've been, uh, for the most part, lucky enough to turn into multi-million pound multinational companies. Candidly, I've had to shut a few because they were just bad ideas that were you know, frankly, really going to flounder rather than uh, change or revolutionize the industry. So those many organizations you've built then, is there one that was the most successful? If you look back, you go, it all came together there. Even a career sweet spot was firebrand training, really. It all came together, great clarity about what we were trying to do, you know, who was responsible for what, what our plan was over, you know, the one, three, five, seven year life cycle, real clarity around yeah, the people that we needed in the business, what the culture was of the business, how to performance manage it. So yeah, even it started off with just a, just a handful of us, we had pure vision of where we were going, why we were going there and yeah, what differentiated us in the market. So I think that was the perfect storm. And was Channel part of that? We built, I guess, what we now describe as a, as a shadow channel. Many of the largest IT training companies in the country and beyond were somewhat forced to buy some of our certification programs. We dominated very quickly, I think, you know, even before it became a thing, the cybersecurity space and the, and the primary certifications in that space. So if you wanted to get certified by ISC Squared, EC Council and, and other organizations, you had to come through the Firebrand training program. So we built a shadow channel in that sense. 
Why did you have to come through the Firebrand training for, for their certifications? We were the only authorised provider of those certifications in the country. Was that deliberate or was that sort of serendipitous? It was a deliberate accident. <laughs> <laughs> in the sort of get one, get one, realise this works, go then go deliberately find some more. Yeah, I mean, you know, a partnership with a company called The Training Camp in the States gifted us those partnerships. We took them beyond, you know, into really, really strong partner partner development programs. So I was managing those as vendors and, uh, you know, third-party sales channels uh, in Firebrand, you know, getting me away from the front lines and managing those relationships. And you know, we did a lot of work really to establish those organizations on the, on the UK map and making them the go-to um, certification vendors in the cybersecurity space. And as I said, we had a, a glorious opportunity to dominate that market for a very long time and Firebrand still do. I know them quite well. Why did you end up then at the end of that go, I'm going to be a coach and then ultimately a trainer with, with the Sandler sales methodology? I spent 13 years, I think, building Firebrand. And um, if I'm remembered for anything, coach trainer was you know, my primary function, carry whatever title in an organization, but then invested most of my time in growing individuals. Uh, Firebrand, in reality, had done everything I felt I possibly could and was starting to get in the way of you know, some of the people that I'd been developing to succeed me. I was starting to get in the way, hanging around just that 12, 24 months longer than I should have done. <laughs> but I had decided through that time, I built a selling system of my own. I'd robbed, borrowed, stolen, and paid great tribute to some of the best selling systems on the planet. And I pulled that together in one, one clear program, which we used on board. And they still use, yeah, okay, it's probably advanced on a little bit from my day, but they still use the bare bones of that program now. So I was going to become a... You know, a sales coach, trainer, go back to working with smaller businesses that frankly had a founder and were distinctly floundering in the area that most small business owners struggle, um, which is sales. A, because they don't like it. They don't like the thought of being considered doing it. Moreover, never done it, don't know, uh, wouldn't know where to start. But then I got made a, an offer by um, NASDAQ listed software company called Log Me In, and that took me to them for a couple of years. And that's really where I learned Sandler. Ah, okay. Just taking you back to Firebrand, before you did Sandler, what, what were the, those sort of systems that you'd, you'd borrowed from or stolen from or paid tribute to? What, what, were the, what were the things you'd knitted together into a system? We had a beautiful business, really. I mean, we were a sales and marketing business that happened to do certification. So we had a great marketing team that were de developing and generating a, a, you know, a tsunami of leads on a daily basis. It was relatively easy for us to employ early on tools like Google because we were tracking certifications. So your real keyword stuff that we could dominate on Google. So really the idea was to develop clear you know, bonding report at the start of a conversation and then really isolate you know, somebody's why. You know, why do they need or want or are considering doing certification? Not selling training, perhaps, but more understanding what the training and the certification program is going to do for them. Is it career advancement, either in the organization they're in? Is it that next job down the line or that next job up the ladder? So the team, they were very, very well trained in many call consultative selling. I don't like that phrase. 
because most of the people I meet that do consultative selling say, you know, I asked them a couple of questions, didn't I? But we've really built a clear consulting system that asked the individual questions and, and really funneled them down through to this clear end game that certification you know, had a meaning to them. It meant a, it made a difference to them, their career, the speed by which their career moved or gave their organization, if I think about the Microsoft partner community we built, gave their organization greater standing and with the vendors that they work with. I'd forgotten there for a little while that you really sort of it's a B2C business as much as a B2B business, isn't it? You know, what's in it for the individual as well as what's in it for the organization. And that helps you then get clarity on how do you then go and talk to them, not about the training, but those benefits. Because the individual holds a certification, some organizations benefit from a collection of, of certifications, perhaps in their vendor partnerships, but it was very much a person to person sport. Although we developed that out, they continue to do so now with more corporate grade training offerings. So how is Sandler different then? What made you, I guess, fall in love with that as a methodology? It starts with the first rule of Sandler that I ever learned, which is uh, all buyers lie all the time. <laughs> That's, uh, uh, this wonderfully unelegant person teach me how to dance, you know, Sandler's well-known for the buyer-seller dance. Yeah, and the buyer system is you know, to lie, steal, lie, and disappear. The first lie they tell you is yeah, they withhold information, you know, vital information that helps you understand why they might want to buy your stuff so that they can steal your vital knowledge by getting you to move into a free consulting model. Then they lie about their intent to buy from you, you know, with lots of happy handshakes and you know, leave it with me, we'll give it our best consideration. And then they ghost you. You know, when you call them on the day you agreed to call them, let's be clear, most salespeople forget to do that tiny bit, set a date and time for the next time they're going to call. <laughs> Still believe 97% of sales right now are being lost for that simple action of when are we talking again? You know, what date, time, people. But then they disappear on you, which makes sense because, you know, Traditional salespeople, traditional makes it sound old. It's still happening today. Um, show up, throw up, beg and bother. You know, they show up to uh, yeah, the opening of an envelope. If a client says, come in, they'll go. They throw up. You know, they ask a couple of questions. That doesn't really get them anywhere, so they go into presentation mode and will spew all of that knowledge that their organization prizes and the prospect prizes for absolutely zero. They'll be taught some cheesy closes, you're either online or in person, uh, and they'll try those out and the client will say, oh yeah, nice try, but no luck. And then they're taught to um, flash on the blues and twos and pursue, be persistent, be persistent, be persistent. Well, you know, up until the point you get a um, restraining order um, <laughs> placed on you. What caught me was, you know, I'd had quite a lot of success, so don't misread me, but I, I recognized in myself, in my people, that dysfunctional system playing out day in, day out. It's a bit like these sort of, you know, you see a drawing and you go, oh, I know what that is. And then somebody goes up, but couldn't it be something else? And you go, oh yeah, no, look, it could be. It's that sort of moment of clarity, isn't it? Where you realize that you'd been successful, but what you were doing, you could be more successful by doing less probably, or certainly doing something different. Yeah, there's a little bit of lazy bone in me somewhere. And, and what I've realized <laughs> is... 
the other systems I was using for selling were exhausting at times. Ego sapping, morale sapping. I was dragging my identity across the carpet of prospects' offices. And so what Sandler taught me really is know where you're going and you, you know where you're going when you agree up front where this is going. And the upfront contract for me, we've got some amazing stuff on our systems, but the upfront contract for me and for my clients is an absolute game changer. Let's agree up front what we're going to do together or moreover, you know, if we're not going to do anything together, let's agree that up front too. Yes. And I find myself doing that, you know, at the end of a, a meeting. It's fine. It's fine if people say, uh, this isn't for me or I don't want to, we don't want to talk again. That's absolutely fine because a no is, is the next best thing to a yes. At least I won't waste my time. Yeah, I always think it's the first best thing to a yes. Um, <laughs> it's tough to say no if you don't understand what the individual just taught you about. So sometimes, you know, that no can just be the embarrassed time. I didn't really get it. Prospects are still the best sales trainers in the market and they don't cost very much. You know, a bit of petrol and ego, um, but not much else. But learning how to get no's early in the conversation from you know, people that just aren't a fit, aren't fit to be clients. They're not a fit for you. They don't want what you do. They do want what you do. They just want it for free. So it made that whole selling process super efficient and trained the prospect to be more honest in the sense of, yeah, the more honest you are, the closer you and I'll get to really solving the problems that you've got. If you don't tell me what's going on, any solution I'm going to offer you next is going to be half cocked, half baked, or yeah, completely off the mark. What type of clients are you typically working with? Almost exclusively tech companies, and they're normally less than 50 employees. Typically starting with a founder or, you know, what I like to describe as the flounder, not because they're not experts in what they do, because they are. And the, the reason they've set that business up is they're an absolute expert in their field. The field they're not in, though, is selling. They haven't sold before. They're very good, very passionate about what it is they do. They haven't sold before. Moreover, they haven't led a business before. Or if they have, there might be more of the serial entrepreneur, quite a lot of logos behind them and, and you know, web domains, but hasn't yet got a successful business. And you know, the petrol in the engine of every business is sales. And you know, it doesn't matter how you look at it, they don't happen by accident. I've tried staring furiously at the phone for eight hours and um, I cannot make it ring. The sort of show up and throw up salespeople, that, but the founder who's really enthusiastic about their thing you know, they're inclined to do the same just because they're so enthusiastic about whatever it is they've built. Well, the flounder can't wait for an opportunity to throw up and prospects can't wait for an opportunity to get, you know, zero rated consulting. They love it. Yes. Best opportunity to disregard the disqualifier supplier ever is to watch them in action, you know, bouncing around for two and a half hours about their brilliant idea, which at no point is ever tuned into you know, what the prospect wants and needs, the problems they're experiencing, the pain that they're experiencing in their world. It's just sharp and throw up. Where did the Sandler methodology come from? What's its genesis? It's founded and with us now for about 50 years, and you'll understand yeah, it keeps you know, evolving itself over time. But about 50 years ago, a guy called David Sandler, who in some bloody coup was thrown out of his business overnight, started selling door-to-door self-help programs. Back in the day when rather than coming on a, a CD or a, or a USB stick, came in um, fairly weighty 78-inch records. 
and listening to and reading people like El Nightingale and, and you know, watching people in action. He started to develop out the system. Many people who, who, who've had any exposure to Sandler will, will know the submarine and the, the seven steps in that submarine. Uh, and that's what he developed out over time was um, a selling system that's really based on the foundations of a lot of psychology, transactional analysis. So really understanding ourselves and our ego states, you know, the parent, adult, child stuff how that plays out in front of a um, potential prospect. Um, so you improve your communication style. And that's what I loved about Sandler. I'd done a lot of training and a lot of it was good stuff. And, you know, I'd always walk out with at least, you know, one or two things that would be worthwhile from, you know, two days invested in training. But nothing I'd done before Sandler changed how I thought, how I felt and how much better I was at helping prospects to buy from me than those first couple of days and beyond in Sandler. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think that the way you talk there, that's why you want to qualify people because sales is all about push, It's it, isn't it? It's like, you know, I'm going to get some unsuspecting soul to give me his money for something he doesn't want. And so it's not surprising that most people don't want to do that. It's akin to stealing sweets from old ladies. Whereas going out and saying, you're a good fit for me. I know I can help you. How do I perhaps get you to the point where you think that you want to buy from me? It's a totally different thing. Yeah, my fine brand guys will tell you, you know, my mantra of selling is it is a mutual problem solving exercise. And if it isn't, then, you, then you're really not achieving very much. You can probably manipulate somebody into buying from you once. Most of us prefer to have clients that stay with us for a long time probably preferably a lifetime, but at least a long time um, than the snatch and grab selling that still pervades in some environments today. But I even think that when people who aren't successful salespeople think about sales, that's immediately what they think about, sort of snatch and grab. That that's in their heads is like, there was a great piece of work in the Harvard Business Review, I think 26, June 2016, and it said 85% of salespeople never hit their targets, ever. And only 15% of them hit them in multiple companies or over multiple time frames. And you just think there's nothing. I mean, no wonder people don't think of sales as a profession. If your accountant got the sums wrong that often or any surgeon with a death rate that high or, you know, anyone wrote code that badly, they would be fired instantly. And yet I meet people all the time who put up with salespeople who have no skills, have no curiosity, don't seem to want to get any better and aren't very good at it. It's, it's incredible. Sadly, there's no standing requirement to, there are no prerequisites for a career in, well, there are prerequisites. Sorry, Dave, you're being an idiot. The prerequisites are, you know, uh, a mouth, preferably two ears and two eyes. And a pulse. Yeah, a pulse. Um, yeah, the ability to miss the mirror. Um, but that's about it. You and I have been around long enough to know that, you know, there's a quarter of a century push on trying to professionalize our industry. And yeah, these people pop up and try for a while. There's no, there's no condensed commitment to turning this into a profession. Yeah, again, the firebrand guys will tell you, I would constantly tell them that about 10% of this industry can call itself a professional. Having salesperson on your business card does not make you a professional salesperson. And yet with all those millions and millions of pounds invested in sales training, sales techniques, sales tactics, yeah, the results are the same today as they were when I started out. 
But it's that fundamental difference, isn't it, between push and pull. Lots of the systems that people are investing in training their people on are still around that interruption, you know, throw up and then pester. You know, it's still, there's still a lot of people investing a lot of time and money in training their people because that's their paradigm. Right. It's the, um, dear Mr. Client, let me put it to you that you're an idiot systems that get taught and not enough investment in the elegant art of great conversation, which is all sales should be really, you know, two people openly sharing with each other challenges and potential recommendations to overcome them. You know, hard selling gets hard resistance. What do you think about not having to pay salespeople commission or paying salespeople commission? What's your thought on that? Trouble with bandwagons is you know, sometimes if you don't jump quick enough, your foot slips and you get caught under the undercarriage. And I think it's a bit of a, a movement to not, it's almost people's advertising, we don't pay our salespeople commission. It's a good thing like that was a bad thing. That was what yeah, the industry sin was. And the industry sin isn't commission. The industry sin is investing in cheap, tired and testing tactics that make salespeople ugly and uncomfortable to spend any time with and you know, making you feel like you want to run the shower cold with your knees in your hand after having just met one. There's nothing wrong in commission. There's nothing wrong in performance bonuses. There's nothing. That's not the problem. And you don't get a better class of person because you don't pay them commission. You're still going to see the same tired and testing approaches to sales, whether you pay them commission or not. What are some of these essences then for you that those people who are who are listening going, okay, what, what's different? Give me a few things that are different about your approach. Learn to have the confidence to establish up front a comfortable environment to do business. And a comfortable environment to do business is founded in rapport, which is the ability or French word that describes two people that are willing to be open and honest with each other. Develop out a good consultation system. Yeah, a really good, strong qualification system that perhaps is founded more in disqualification, finding good reasons why they're not going to do business with you. Um, than the happy-eared, bouncy bunny approach of enthusiasm, excitement, and you know the wishing and hoping system. And then if nothing else, my, I'm tired of spending my week watching brilliant bits of technology that I'm introduced to, delivered in what I call a wallpaper demo. You stare at the screen and it, it doesn't change from one demo to the next. It's just boring, bland, look at what we've invented stuff. There's no attempt to say, you know, what's important to you? Let's spend time looking at the one, two, four, five things about our technology that are going to change your world. If we've got any time left at the end of the demo, perhaps I'll show you some stuff that, you know, I'm all excited about. But to start with, let's listen here, understand what's going on in your world. And then let me share with you or show you how our technology or our services might augment your world cover that gap between where you are and where you want to be and take you forward. It's all about you know, the art of a great conversation, at least the two people agreeing that there is a problem that's worth solving and the solution that's worth having. Everything else is peddling. And that they agree to carry on talking about it until ultimately one of them purchases it. Gain clarity at the end of the conversation about you know what the next steps are 
getting a clear timeline of how they're going to buy with you, who's going to be involved, when, you know, what are the dates and times by which those agreed actions are going to happen, or, you know, shake hands, stay friends, you know, maintain eye contact the next time you see them. If it's not a fit, be brave enough as a salesperson to walk away, not sit there with trying to work out how you can, how you can twist this individual who doesn't want what you do into taking it off you. Half of the long sales cycles in this planet are created by salespeople. They're rarely, if ever, created by the buyer. And you know, from what I can see, typically in a one, two, three-year sales cycle, they've brought other solutions elsewhere three or four times before they've eventually decided to buy yours. That's a salesperson's fault. That's nobody else but the salesperson's fault. It's our inability to have a, a productive conversation. Is there any role for... PowerPoint in in the sales process, do you think? I think there is. Yeah, okay. The, yeah, another great trend. You know, death by PowerPoint. Yeah, I've not met anybody yet that has died watching a PowerPoint presentation. Met a few people that have got close. You know, the pulse has really dropped down. But um, trouble with presentations is most people actually aren't very good at building them. And they build me-centric, I-centric presentations that are all about peddling their wares rather than helping the client to see how your solution fits in their world and is a fit for the problems that they're experiencing in their world. So like everything else, if you bespoke it to them, they don't care how many slides you've got. I mean, they might do after a while, but... As long as it's about them, but if it looks like it's just come out shiny from the marketing department and you've been sent out to talk through it, they're going to spot it from a mile off. Yeah, see, I, I often paraphrase win friends and influence people as, uh, look, people don't give a shit about you. They only care about themselves morning, noon and night. I was with a client recently where their standard deck includes a slide, which I think says they have 34 staff in Stockholm. And there was nobody in that organization who had ever shown that slide to anybody who was even remotely interested in it. And yet it was part of the standard deck because the senior people thought that somehow that was important. And it's that lack of connection between what's important to me and what might be important to the customers in terms of buying. And then just, as you say, repeating it because it's in the deck. One of the problems is discovery and demonstration are two very separate events. And you should be ready to go, you know, for that first meeting, ears open and, you know, coaching the client to be open and honest with you and then walk away. If you start trying to solve anything you heard in that meeting, it's just going to look plastic. You know, here's one I made earlier as you pull it, pull the presentation up from under the desk. Give it a little bit of time. If they've shared enough with you in the first meeting to want to explore more, buy time, step back, really you know, use the assets in your organization, but adapt them to the purpose of the problem that the prospect's just given you. Go back and share with them your, re and again, this is important, your recommendations, because it's not a solution yet. It's recommendations, suggestions of things that you could do together that might solve their problem. It's not the bloody solution because they haven't paid for it yet. They haven't implemented yet. So it's only Again, recommendations is a better style than, you know, here's what you're going to do. Here's what you're going to buy. Yeah. And it, well, it's part of that. It's a peer conversation, as you said, that uh, mutual solving of a problem. Must be mutual business status. 
weekend, you know, salespeople walk in bowing and scraping to the power of the prospect. That concept that you know, the buyer's always right, so the prospect must be too. Um, but half the time, the problem the prospect brings you is never the real problem. It's another slander rule. And they, half the time in technology, there is a myriad, a smorgasbord of different things you could do to solve a problem. And yeah, there's certainly plenty of vendors willing to come in and talk at you about what they do. It's the one person that takes time to really understand where their organization's at and where they're going and comes back and makes you know, strong recommendations of what they should do that wins the day, I think, in modern selling. And often with some sort of honesty and humility. Yeah, call it early doors. Yeah, it can be. Yeah, we don't do everything, but we do do something. Is something what you want? Is this what you're looking for in that particular space? Be open in partnership to recommending other organizations that may, you know, you may go in hand in hand. Perhaps not a charabang of you, but yeah, a couple of you going in and, and owning different aspects of that solution. David, moving on from sort of sales to channel as a, as a way, I guess, of going to market differently. That's your other area of expertise and your, your book, Making Channel Sales Work. What is that also driven out of your experience with these sort of 5 million turnover tech firms or? Yeah, it was a book based on experience. But then we started to interview lots and lots of people in or curious about building a channel. And I realized I'd learned a lot, forgotten a lot, and didn't know as much as I thought I did. <laughs> uh, yeah, and the book's designed as, um, I'd describe it a bit as a textbook. I don't want that to put people off, but it is a system that enables a small business, you know, a small technology vendor to plan and execute a channel strategy from scratch, having not had one. It may also help them to go see that they were already in channel. They just didn't realize it yet. It's funny. I was working with a client recently and, and they were thinking that direct was the way to go. But actually, when we looked at their early lead flow, they had one direct opportunity and six channel opportunities. They knew they were there, but they hadn't come into focus until we sat down and, and thought about their business and and how they might sell it. And bringing channel into the mix changed their view of where they might be in three years' time completely. What are some of the what are some of the things that you think people need to think about differently then? Yeah, we're talking either A to the channel curious or those that find themselves having accidentally built a channel that's a little dysfunctional. Um, then the first thing to do is take a good long, hard look in the mirror and ask yourself this question, you know, do I have what it takes to be a good partner? Do you have the attributes? Are you ready? And some of those attributes are that you have done some direct sales. Channel isn't a get out of sales free card. It doesn't, you know, you don't suddenly just abdicate your, your selling responsibilities off to somebody else and say, yeah, what have you got for me this month? So have you got the attributes in place to be a good partner? So some things that you then need to do. So most people go out to build a channel and they're standing behavior probably in the first four or five years is just to build a land army you know how many different people can they get to sign up and how many different places can they get their logo to be displayed on walls doors you know websites and wherever and i truly believe that the effective chief channel manager is looking more to build a special forces unit looking for individuals who are specifically designated They've got real expertise in the specific marketplace or territory or challenge or problem that an organization solves. And so you don't need that many of them. You're better off spending time 
building this hand-picked special forces unit and investing, this is important, getting them to sign partner papers isn't even the start of something. The amount of organizations I see that are still failing to make the investments they need to in augmenting the sales ability of their channel partners. So train them as if they're your own. As you bring you know, a new person into your selling organization, it is incredibly rare in the modern age to find the there's your computer, there's a telephone crack on onboarding system. People know that you're going to need to invest in a new salesperson, probably 30, 60, 90 days of training them on how to work out what their ideal client is. What's the story that you're telling those clients that make them want to connect and get involved in your organization? What's the sales process, the sales cycle? What tools, what attributes do you need to have around you to successfully sell your products? So they take that model and they get really, really good at doing that in new hires and you know, get really proud that they can get new hires up to you know, billing speed in the first 90 days. Then they sign a partner and expect them to just work it out on their own. Or slightly worse, they give them a key to this thing called the portal. They log into the portal and it's an empty pantry. It's like Mother Hubbard's cupboard. They forget, you know, train a partner as if they're your own sales team because that's what they're signing up to and that's what you're signing them up for not just so that you can peddle your product across their website. I hope not anyway. And in fact, that's why you need to sell direct, isn't it? Because otherwise you won't have that knowledge and experience to help partners onboard their salespeople. Yeah, look, in the first year, what you learn on the street is everything you need to start to build up the channel program you're going to develop. It isn't a get out of sales free card channel. You cannot abdicate your selling responsibilities to others and hope they'll work it out for you and work it out first. But if you're curious about building a channel, you're probably building those assets based on the scar tissue you've picked up being in front of prospects and working out how to get people to engage with what it is you do. You've improved yourself with the best sales trainers in the world. Not trying to do myself out of business here, but the best sales trainer in the world is a prospect. And if you're not out prospecting and you're not meeting prospects, you're not ready to build a sales channel. Well, and also you might be in a position where you have, you're trying to attract some companies are already partnering with a competitor. So unless your channel program, unless the prospective partner can see that you have some thing that, and you're going to invest and enable their success, it's a lot of effort to sign up a you might want to displace somebody else. You know, as you say, you've handpicked that partner. You're going to have to get them to switch allegiance to you and you better give them something because just look, I would like you to sell my product instead of theirs is not really going to be a compelling reason for them to make a change. No, I mean, the other one might have a blue logo and yours is red, but I've rarely found that to be a good reason to switch out vendors unless it's you know, more complementary with your current your organizational color scheme. You're going to have to make a difference in their world. They're going to have to see with your proposition, a quicker route to bank. And I know that sounds a little bit mercenary, but the currency of channel success is influence. And there's nothing more influential than an organization seeing that your product sells and that you're able to stand alongside them in partnership with all the skills you need to be a great channel manager. And the title speaks for itself, but it's management without power which means that, again, the currency is influence. Can you influence others who aren't in your 
you're not responsible for hiring them, you're not responsible for firing them, you're not responsible for rewards on boarding or anything else, but you are a manager to them in their world. And you know, again, the currency of quality management is coaching and training skills. Are you a great coach? Can you coach other people's people to be better than, the, than they are today? Can you train them in skills and techniques that win more business? You know, and can you keep that two and a half hour product demonstration in your back pocket for when it's important rather than asking the sales team to take a half day off, put matchsticks in their eyes and watch you do your magical rain dance? I mean, I've seen it whole, whole sales floors being dragged off to another vendor's product training session. And they got more out of staring at the wall for a couple of hours because, again, it wasn't tuned in, you know, Partnerships are a win-win-win all the way up the line. The client gets the best possible solution. Your partner gets a profitable, either growing client or a new prospect. And you as the vendor will benefit when those two things happen. And there's a win up the line and back again. Product training is massively overrated and pretty dangerous in, in a salesperson's hands. But moreover, more dangerous in their mouth than it is in their hands. The more product training you give them, the more they're going to have to throw up all over the prospects. And the less questions they ask and, and, and the less products you sell. David, if I could ask you, uh, knowing what you know now, is there a bit of knowledge that you, you might take back to a former time? Yeah, a lot of what I know now is based on, on what I've learned. As I described to most people, I've made every mistake in the book and I've reinvented new ones every day. But if I could have done one thing differently throughout my sales career is I would have invested much, much quicker in leadership skills and management skills than the time I spent investing in becoming the world's greatest salesman. I was a crappy manager at times. And I've learned over the years that telling yourself that you know, you've never built a successful business that hasn't got great people in it is a wonderful thing. But recognizing what it takes to grow people yeah, that's what I would have changed. I would have been a better manager earlier if I'd invested anywhere because the other stuff comes. You become a great manager and actually that's a sales process. Process of influence rather than direction. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. What books have you read along the way that you think other people should pick up? I think there's lots of cracking books. Yeah, I, I sort of wouldn't do a Sandler one, but... Yeah, you can't teach your kid to ride a bike at a seminar. Changed my life. I really like why, although I've just had a complete mind blank. Uh, and Jeffrey Gittimer's little book, Little Red Book of Selling, is a um, constant companion when I'm short of things to do. Uh-huh. Little Red Book and why by... So is it Simon? I want to say Simon Sinek. But I've... Simon Sinek, yeah. 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 Brilliant. Well, David, thank you very much indeed for your time today welcome thanks for having me Dominic thank you for listening I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did as a token of your appreciation it would be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review those reviews really help other people find this podcast for all information relating to this episode you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast and there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read 
on all things relating to scaling up high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me. Share your questions and comments, and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>